This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Hilary Harper here, coming to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation for Life Matters. It is a wonderful, sometimes frustrating and even painful experience having a human body. And its complexity means we're still learning about what's happening when things go wrong and how to treat it. In this body-focused episode, three leaders in their field will provide some answers. Gut issues and how to manage them, especially if you have food intolerances. How to tell if your feet and legs are normal, in quote marks. And first up, what does and doesn't work for managing arthritis? Arthritis affects about 4 million Australians of all ages and backgrounds, and with more than 100 types of arthritis, finding a treatment that works can be tricky. So it's not surprising that some people look for answers in the supplement aisle of their local pharmacy or supermarket. But do supplements work to ease arthritis symptoms? And what do we know about the quality of the science behind those supplements that we're sold? I'd love to hear from you if arthritis has affected you. What treatment paths have you gone down and what's worked for you? Claire Collins is with us today. She's a laureate professor in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Newcastle. Claire, welcome back to Life Matters. Yes, great to be talking to you today. Well, this is a biggie. This is a topic that a lot of people are interested in, if our text line's anything to judge by in in, uh, previous shows. Why do people with arthritis turn to supplements or radically change their diet? What's what's happening in their their, uh, journey with that illness that makes that a good idea? I think there's a couple of reasons. One would be the pain and disability. And I think the other reason is people may feel they've gotten as far as they can with conventional treatments and their condition still isn't improving. So they're looking for, is there something else that they could do to regain some quality of life and and control over their condition? Well, and that's something that's very, very relatable. Do supplements work? I mean, European researchers have done a a large-scale review of, of the studies on supplements. What did they find? Well... I I tracked down this particular review because it's very important. So this European Alliance for the associations who are involved in rheumatology and arthritis, they went and looked and left no stone unturned in trying to synthesise all of the evidence. They found that there'd already been 24 systematic reviews and that's a study where they go and gather all the evidence and try and say, take supplements or not, but they also went and did the most up-to-date research and they found another 150 extra trials and then they pulled all of this information together across 80 different types of supplements and special diets. And unfortunately, the overall evidence is that in general, there are few that they could recommend. You know, there were there were a couple, but the problem is a lot of these studies are really poorly designed. And so the evidence quality comes out as low. And that means when the evidence rating is low, it means, well, it could have just been found by chance. But like I said, there were two categories where there was moderate quality evidence, meaning at this point, They're worth having a go and see if they work for you, but they may or may not. Well, let's talk about them in a minute. But just to go in a bit more detail into the quality of the science, what are some of the things that can make a study lower quality that make you think, I'm not sure we can really use that? Yeah, so some of the things are like I tell you what you're taking. So I say I'm giving you this supplement that we really think might improve your arthritis symptoms and especially your pain. So then that can create a placebo effect. Um, you can get um, bias, what's called an attention bias. I'm now bringing you in and I go, oh, you should be on these other medications as well. And that changes at the same time. You can have people who are um, rating some symptoms who know who got the placebo and who got the active ingredient. So it's all of those kinds of things. Sometimes there is no control group. So they're only doing a pre and post study. And sometimes bias can be introduced if the study is actually funded by the people who made the manufacturers. So there's some overt things where you get extra treatment and benefit by being in the study and some that are more subtle. 
you know, like you might not want to disappoint these researchers who are spending a lot of time with them. So you report your symptoms as, as being better than they are. And that's particularly important for something like pain because there's not actually a biochemical test or a blood test that says how much pain you're in. Only you know what your experience of pain so you're more susceptible to that like reporting bias you call it yeah it's quite heartening to think that people are so helpful that they're trying to trying to help the researchers but it's not useful for the science we're speaking with claire collins who's a laureate professor in nutrition and dietetics at the university of newcastle about what supplements may or may not be useful in the treatment of arthritis um, Claire, the the things that they did find related to osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Can you go into detail a bit more detail about what they found about those two uh, types of arthritis? I was really glad when I looked at the evidence that there was a little bit of hope. There were two things that could be recommended, and osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis are two of the most common. So osteoarthritis is often referred to as wear and, wear and tear. So you wear out, out your joints. And whereas rheumatoid arthritis, the damage to the joints comes from an autoimmune disease, but they both kind of have the same localised effect. The joints swell, they become painful, you get, you get stiffness. So for osteoarthritis, the wear and tear type of arthritis, there was a small effect for on pain and function. That means your ability to move around for vitamin D and then the supplements chondritin and glucosamine. So that's now, for osteoarthritis. This, yeah, just for yeah. osteoarthritis. Now, this might be news to people because prior to this big European review, the latest advice without including these extra studies had been there's actually no effect. And before that, there was an effect. And that's the challenge about moderate quality evidence. Moderate quality evidence is kind of like waving a caution flag that this advice might change over time as more studies are done. So it's one that's flip-flopped, you know, back from, oh, yeah, oh, no, and now we're back to, oh, yeah, again for osteoarthritis. So, you know, my recommendation would be if you've tried everything and you really want to try something and you've got osteoarthritis, give it a go don't change anything else while you're taking the supplements and see if it works for you for pain and stiffness. Now the And sorry, let's just remind people what those supplements were. It was vitamin D, chondritin and glucosamine. And, and glucosamine. But I think there's something interesting that could be a confounding factor for vitamin D. So vitamin D, you actually do make that in your skin when you're outside. So sometimes vitamin D is also like a marker for physical activity. So, you know, being as mobile as you can is likely to be very helpful for osteoarthritis as well. But there is this moderate quality evidence for vitamin D, chondritin and glucosamine. So if you're going to take them, buy the bottle, take it until it ends and then make an evaluation for you yourself and let your um, supervising doctor and your GP, you can mention it to your pharmacist as well that you're, that you're taking these things, just so that everyone's on the same, you know, team you trying to help you, um, you know, reduce your pain and manage your condition. Yeah. And it was different for rheumatoid arthritis, wasn't it? There was a different uh, moderate quality evidence. Yeah. So rheumatoid arthritis, that's the one that's an autoimmune condition. And there was a small positive effect just on pain. So not in helping you move about more for omega-3 fatty acids. Now, these are the fish oils. And the way they work is when you're taking fish oils, your body can metabolize them to make anti-inflammatory chemicals in your body. So what that does is it's kind of like, you know, bringing in, bringing in the A-team to come in and help sort out this inflammation that's happening in your knees. But for fish oils, you really do need to persevere for a three-month trial at least. And the reason for that is those fish oils, they, the special fatty acids, the long-chain fatty acids, they get incorporated into the membrane of your red blood cells. And the half-life of a red blood cell is about three months. So you really need to have you know, that A-team come in, take up all the places they can before you really be able to see if they're having any particular effect on you. Mm. Quick question, Claire Collins. Uh, I have vegan friends and they are saying that the, the vegan option for fish oils is flaxseed oil. Is that correct? 
yeah, some of those some of those things like flax seeds and canola also contains the same types of long chain fatty acids. There are some algal fish oil products. So you really need to, you know, take along your reading glasses and get up close to all of those supplements in the omega-3 aisle and they'll be non-fish omega-3 chains. The other really interesting thing about omega-3s is they're more potent or better able to be incorporated into your red blood cell membranes if you lower your regular polyunsaturated fat intake. So if you lower sunflower and safflower oil, but you switch to canola and um, and olive oil, which are monounsaturated. It's just it's a straight competition. They all want to get into your red blood cell membranes, but you want to you want to let those long chain fatty acids get in there first. And we might have a chat uh, in a few moments about lifestyle factors and th- ways you can take things into your own hands aside from supplements and and diet with Claire Collins. But a couple of texts have come in. One says, "I have connective tissue disease and use fish oil cap- capsules." Uh, another from Roz says, I have rheumatoid arthritis and over many years have found fish oil very effective overall. I now take far fewer anti-inflammatory painkillers than I used to. It seems to work differently in everyone, however, and thanks for covering this important issue. And that's an important thing to remember, isn't it, uh, Claire? It's You're going to need to talk to your specialist, as you said, and keep your own record of how it's working for you because everyone's different. Yes, that's absolutely. And that's what this moderate quality evidence means. And that's why it's worth having your N of one, they call it, a U trial, a me trial. So see if they work for you. But if they don't work for you, so they're the ones where there's some moderate quality evidence. So then there's a whole raft, like the other 80 types of supplements, where there's low or or um, really biased evidence. So for those ones, you know, if you've already bought a bottle or someone told you to try this, again, try it. Make sure you tell your medical team and especially your pharmacist because sometimes those complementary products can compete with regular medications. But if at the end of that it's not working, then, yeah, don't take it because I think that money, there's evidence for a healthy dietary pattern overall in improving your overall health and well-being and lowering your risk for other chronic conditions. Because unfortunately, when you have arthritis, you do have this inflammation that's going on throughout your body. And that does increase your risk for things like heart disease. So if you have one of those 100 arthritis conditions, it's really important that you stay in touch with your GP and your medical team and you get your regular checkups for things like heart disease. Well, yeah, and you can get into trouble with taking extra supplements, can't you? People think, oh, well, a bit of supplement is good, more must be better. That's not true. That Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why the, the trial taking as, recommend, as recommended on the labels is important because it is possible to overdo some supplements. The most dangerous ones are, are things that are fat-soluble. So in the vitamins, that's things like vitamin A and, you know, the classic story is about all those um, explorers, you know, who, who went to the South Pole who, who got too much vitamin A because they were eating um, husky livers. So definitely don't do that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but the key, the key thing is that if you're having a healthy diet, there's actually no harm and there's evidence of good. But some of, some of these supplements, there isn't any evidence of those. So you want to be limited in your trial. I totally get why, you know, when you feel feeling like nothing else is working, it may be time to go back and talk to your doctor again, or you may feel like you really want to reach out and try one of these particular supplements. But um, when it comes to the healthy lifestyle, and if you're in pain, you might be tempted to drink more alcohol, but that's one really, really please, please um, do have a chat to your doctor because small amounts of alcohol, they're unlikely to have any negative impact on arthritis, except if you have liver disease or except if you're on a couple of particular medications, uh, methotrexate, for example, and there's another one called leflunamide. So, um, and, you know, for rheumatoid arthritis and gout, alcohol can cause flare-ups. So, you know, it's it's very challenging for people. I, I totally, totally get that. Living with arthritis is a challenge and trying to manage your own journey is a, a big challenge for you. Mm. But... The healthy eating patterns, there are other reviews that show that there is some improvement 
for healthy eating patterns, things like the Mediterranean diet, and it's high in that, you know, olive oils and nuts, and it's actually rich in foods that contain vitamin D, like the eggs and and fish and things and things like that. So, um, you know, that's why there there was in fact some evidence for healthy dietary patterns overall. Yep, that, I was just going to read you a text from Angela in Lilydale in Melbourne. Supplements I narrowed down to fish oil, collagen. It says hydraulic acid. I, maybe that's not. Maybe it's hyaluronic or something like that. Some other kind of acid, uh, and a Mediterranean yep. diet with olive oil, no alcohol, no ultra processed food. So she's right on board with that. What do you think that other acid might be, Claire? Uh, that sounds like it may may have been that, but. You know, unfortunately for um, collagen, there was actually evidence that it did not work for rheumatoid arthritis. So that was the other thing I found I found interesting in this big European review. They did find some supplements where there was, for specific types of arthritis, there was evidence against it. You know, the study was um, conducted conducted in a way that they were able to say actually this one this one didn't work, but. I did write about this for the conversation and I thought some people may want to go and look up their their supplement for their type of arthritis. So I put in a link to these big long tables in the paper that contain the the whole 80 supplements so you can go and look, look them up. But, you know, like we said, everyone's different. 100 types of arthritis, 80 types of supplements. Mm -hmm. It's probably never going to be the definitive study for the supplement you're interested in and the type of arthritis that, that you have. But overall, healthy eating patterns is really important. Yep. And as you mentioned, for uh, rheumatoid arthritis, there was moderate ev- evidence for a small positive effect from those uh, omega-3 oils. And for osteoarthritis, moderate quality evidence for a small positive effect on pain uh, for vitamin D, chondritin and glucosamine. And you can look up Claire Collins' uh, findings about that uh, research on the conversation. Claire, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure and, you know, best wishes to everyone suffering from arthritis. It's no easy road. Exactly. Claire Collins is a Laureate Professor in Nutrition and Dietetics at the University of Newcastle. If you've been feeling bloated, crampy, gassy, or if you've been unable to eat the things you could eat before the pandemic without feeling uncomfortable, you are not alone. Dietitian Kim Menzies is here to talk about why that might be and what you can do about it and how to know if you have a gut issue, food intolerance, or just gas. Kim Menzies has been a practicing dietitian for 17 years and she specializes in gut issues and food intolerances. She sees clients around the country. Kim, welcome. Thanks, Erica. Great to be here. So first up, Kim, can you give me a sense of what we're talking about when we're discussing gut issues? It's a broad term. What does that cover? Yeah, look, it certainly is, and people can experience things like bloating, things like reflux, things like abdominal pain or cramping. They might have altered bowel habits or they might have what we some might describe diarrhea or loose motions, and then other people might be at the other end of the spectrum with constipation. So there are lots of individual what we'd call gut symptoms, but then they can collectively come under a heading of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, if they are ongoing and um, if they have been uh, investigated and there's no sense of actual a physiological issue underlying them, then that's where the, the term irritable bowel syndrome might come in. And Kim, I believe some recent studies have found an increase in people presenting with gut issues since the pandemic and those on the front line of dealing with people's gut health problems have also witnessed this increase. What have you yeah. been seeing over the past few years? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have seen an increase in people experiencing these gut symptoms, which we know that there is a relationship with um, stress and anxiety affecting the nerve endings that run through the gastrointestinal tract um, that run between the gut and the brain. So when there's an increase in stress around um, within a person's life or as we've seen with COVID, that collective impact of everyone's swimming in the same fish pool of COVID, we can see that 
impact on on the gut and and why we are seeing an increase in symptoms. And I know it's early days, Kim. You know, there have been a few studies. I had a quick look at some. Have they been shedding any light on what is the cause here? I think it is early, certainly early days, but we know with, say, irritable bowel syndrome, there is a strong relationship between the role of stress and anxiety where uh, those hormones, the adrenaline um, and cortisol can impact the nerve endings when someone has a sensitive gut. Um, You know, I often use the term between uh, someone with a cast iron stomach um, who seems to be able to eat anything and never experience any any symptoms and then someone who has a lot more symptoms or a lot more sensitive to, you know, the bloating, the wind, the pain. Uh, And so that sensitivity is what is being affected when we maybe are experiencing more stress. There are a a whole range of factors. The types of food that we might be eating may have also changed. So there are multiple factors, including the stress, why we might see that increase. And Kim, I've just got an interesting text, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, but maybe you can help me with it. This texter says, I've dumped whole foods and I eat processed everything and I experience no gas or bloating. I eat fruit or sweets only when I absolutely need it and no in-between. So different foods are going to work for different people. But what's your response to that? Yeah, look, it, it's interesting. I, I think in at the moment where we have such a heavy influence of, say, diet culture within our that obsession with eating healthy, we know that for some people they might be eating too much fibre. And so even though, you know, I might see someone that, that's eating a lot of fibre because they're only eating, in inverted commas, clean um, foods, that if, if their gut is experiencing a lot of stress, then fibre actually takes a lot of time to process, which is why it's really good for us and it provides the um, microbiome with a whole lot of wonderful food. But if you're eating too much and um, it's taking a long time to process, then some people can see that rise of gas because of the amount of fibre. So if someone's experiencing um, improvement because they're eating sort of a more refined diet, um, I certainly do have some clients that do respond well in that regard. And and the flip side, um, if I have someone who is not eating enough fibre, that would be something that I would be looking at. Could we increase the fibre intake in their diet and do they see that it actually is supporting better gut health by feeding, you know, the trillions of microbes that you've got in the colon. And if we're not having enough fibre for some people, it's actually that reason um, that their gut microbiota might be out of whack. And Kim, some people listening to this might be thinking the causes here are psychosomatic because sometimes you can go to a doctor and there can be no physiological issue. Tell me about this tendency to assume it's psychosomatic. Yeah, look, I guess when people are told there's nothing wrong, um, you know, and historically people might have been told, get less stressed um, and it's all in your head. And I find that really um, invalidating because the truth is... Well, can I just say when someone says get less stressed, I mean, I think that has an inverse reaction. You become more stressed. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. Um, And yet we do know that stress has a significant um, factor in potentially exacerbating symptoms. So we hold this sort of complex picture there. But I I think what we can see is the way that I would describe it is if we know that stress is a factor in, in these symptoms, then how can we proactively look at some stress management tools to be able to support um I guess just turning down the volume on the stress piece of the puzzle. And, you know, often I would describe the multifactorial nature. And so if this is one of the factors that is at work, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the role of gut-directed meditation. We're seeing the role of gut-directed hypnotherapy. Um, deep breathing is actually a fabulous tool to what we describe as relax, relax and massage the intestines to help them move along more effectively in the body. So there, whilst, yes, um, we might say get less stressed, we actually know there are 
really positive tools that can be utilised to assist people. Even even going for a walk um, and movement can be a really proactive that tool. That can actually to, be a really good physical yeah, um, aid to uh, kind of getting the gut moving. And look, we've got absolutely. a... Kim, we've got another text because I think people get a little bit sick of the whole, oh, it's all to do with stress thing. And one listener has yeah. said stress is an easy cop-out for a diagnosis. Patients with Addison's disease do not produce cortisone and they still get irritable bowel syndrome. Let's talk about some of the physiologically and symptomatically different um, conditions. You know, what's the difference between something like Crohn's where there's actual damage, inflammation that's mm-hmm. causing symptoms, and something like um, irritable bowel syndrome or functional gut disorder? Yes, that's right. So I guess one of the important pieces is that we would always have um, conditions excluded that actually are um, have inflammation at the source of them. So something like inflammatory bowel disease, um, something like diverticular disease, some people might have a flare up there. Um, someone might have celiac disease. And so there certainly are conditions, Addison's disease, hormonal um, um, conditions that are impacting the body and if untreated will um, either be causing damage in the case of celiac disease um, or left untreated will continue that ongoing inflammation. So it is really important to have those conditions excluded and it might be that um, it's important to go to a um, gastroenterologist um, or certainly speaking with your GP and then a possible referral to a gastroenterologist. It might be something like endometriosis, which is presenting with um, similar sort of those gut symptoms, but actually the the underlying cause is from the reproductive system. So um, just it really is vital because if we start looking at, say, excluding certain foods, but Um, it is celiac disease, then we need a very specific um, dietary treatment regime for a person with celiac disease. If someone has inflammatory bowel disease, we actually need to treat with medication and we might support with dietary factors, but um, by looking at the diet without the underlying cause being treated, we're going to see ongoing symptoms. Um, but but let's mm. let's talk about the diet. So once you get a handle on where on the spectrum your gut issue lies, mm-hmm. what's the yep. first step when it comes to treatment and it comes to modifying your diet? I guess we're talking about something like the FODMAP diet here. Yeah, absolutely. So once again, I guess I would, you know, take a diet history of someone and have a look and it might be that their diet is really low in fibre or it's got too much fibre in. So it might be that we start looking simply at fibre and fibre isn't simple, but, you know, that might be the first port of call. It might be that, yes, that then we move on to look at um, their symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, And so if someone was experiencing a lot of gut symptoms, yes, the low FODMAP diet has been identified as um, the dietary treatment for IBS. and that would involve uh, looking at the specific foods if a person is having a diet that's high in high FODMAP foods, which such things as um, apples, pears, watermelon, um, lactose is seen as a, a FODMAP. Um, other things that are high FODMAP foods would be wheat, um, onions, garlic. So this, this and legumes would be another one. And a really eclectic group of foods that have these poorly absorbed sugars. And if they're poorly absorbed, then they travel through the small intestine and land in the large bowel and they can do two uh, processes. Number one, they can draw in water. So it's people might be experiencing loose emotions because of that water being drawn into the colon. Uh, And also we see that these FODMAPs, Sugars are wonderful food for the bacteria, so they um, break them down and produce gas, and that gas can lead to that bloating, the wind, the distension, the cramping, the pain. Um, and for some people too, they don't um, see the diarrhea effect; they might see the constipation. So that's where, if we're seeing someone with these experiences and other conditions have been excluded, and they have a diet that's high in FODMAP we might look at um, trialling a strict low FODMAP diet with them. Um, and, yeah. 
Sorry. And this is Life Matters and I'm Erica Vols. I'm speaking with Kim Menzies, an accredited, uh, an accredited rather, practising dietitian specialing in gut issues and food intolerances. And I'd like to introduce my second guest. Georgia McDermott is a food blogger and self-described home cook and amateur baker, someone who herself has food intolerances and gut issues and practices the FODMAP diet. Uh, and George has been very aware of the rising prevalence of these issues in the public and has been trying to cater to them for years, first through her blog and Instagram and then through her books. And her latest book is called The Intolerance Friendly Kitchen. Georgia, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you for having me, Erica. So, Georgia, what's your response uh, to these claims that there's been a rise of gut issues since the pandemic started? I mean, I have to say it didn't surprise me. I never sort of made the connection per se. Um, I, Because I had been working from home, I had already established my gut issues prior to the pandemic. Um, and I am probably more on the introverted spectrum of socialisation. The pandemic didn't have that effect on me. But I have experienced in times of stress, um, you know, things like uni finals, uh, working on cookbooks, um, that definitely stress exacerbates my own symptoms. So it didn't surprise me at all. And Georgia, when you first started experiencing issues, how did you go with um, getting to the root cause? It, it took me a while, I have to say. I uh, I think what I had, no one's really ever been able to pinpoint this. It's I have idiopathic gastroparesis. So I think um, I possibly had a viral infection in my early 20s. I came down with a really acute case of stomach pain, um, a sensation of extreme fullness after eating, nausea, that sort of thing. So I was, I was told to go to the ER and from there they established that it was more to be a digestive symptom, a digestive issue rather. And from there, I sort of, you know, moved through different doctors, gastroenterologists, until we landed on the gastroparesis diagnosis. So it did take me a while to get to that point. And Georgia, what was your relationship with food like at the time? And how did you react to seeing what was in and what was out when it came to the FODMAP? <laughs> I, I have loved food all my life. Um, my parents owned a cafe when I was young and we were sort of around the food preparation aspect of it. So I've always been a huge fan um, and I have to say I was pretty devastated when I looked at the list of things I could and couldn't eat. I used to cook um, caramelised an onion for an after-school snack. So when I saw that onions were off the menu, I was pretty upset to say the least. Um, and initially I just sort of thought there's so many. I loved that Kim said eclectic collection because it really is. You look at the list and you think, how does that all group together? It just... It's just random little bits of food that you can't eat. So I looked at it and I thought, no, nah, that's too hard. I'm not doing that. And then gradually as my symptoms worsened, I thought, okay, maybe I really do need to give this a go. So I have to ask you a quick question. Um, you know, we're, we'll be talking about substitutes uh, a little bit later, but, you know, the tops of leeks, the green part, which I normally mm. use for stock, is that an okay substitute for onion? Because a lot of people love onion and the thought of cutting it out is just really devastating. Is that one way to go? It is, yeah, absolutely. Um, the tops of leeks are FODMAP friendly, as are the tops of spring onions. You can also infuse garlic in oil to sort of get that garlicky flavour without the FODMAPs because it's not fat soluble, it's water soluble, the um, fructans in, I think it's fructans in garlic. So there are, there are different things you can do. Also, one I love is um, asphatida powder, which is, Ooh. I think it's a fennel gum. And it has this sort of cooked onion and garlic taste. So it's a really handy one to add into your dishes. And you only need a tiny bit. So, Georgia, what's life like now when it comes to your diet and your health? Are you kind of full FODMAP, partial FODMAP, and, and how's your health? So I did the elimination diet. Um, and the idea being that you sort of eliminate all the high FODMAP foods and then you can identify your own triggers. So for me, wheat... Uh, onion and garlic and legumes are the are the big ones that I still now that I've transitioned off the diet um, I still avoid those so I sort of develop recipes for people who are in that phase of um, they've identified what their triggers are and they're sort of keeping them out or keeping them to a minimum um, so my health is you know it's it's ups and downs always I think when you're testing recipes for a living it can be a bit tricky to um, eat in an ideal sort of way, I guess. Mm, um, yes, I imagine that yeah. would be a problem. 
Yeah. And I mean, you know, if I've cooked something, I'm not going to not eat it. Mm. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's ups and downs, but I've really got to a place where I can identify what gives me grief, um, what I can do when I'm feeling unwell. So I've come a long way and I feel a lot better than I did. Kim Menzies, as a dietitian, I think some people might be thinking, all right, the FODMAP, there's a lot. Um, what's the evidence that it works? And, and do you actually find with clients that they're able to kind of calibrate things to get the good result for them? You know, the real importance of working with an accredited practicing dietitian um, to actually individualise um, the diet. So, you know, if I have someone that is going through a really stressful period, I might say, well, how do we um, manage trialling this in a way that um, is individualised? individualized to you. So it might be that we take out sort of the big ticket items that, you know, Georgia just mentioned, it might be looking at wheat, onion and garlic just as a start to see what improvement does that make. Um, But it's very much a case of looking and if someone wants to do the full um, strict elimination diet, then really the importance of trialling that for sort of a four to six week period. But then the second part of that is that you systematically put back the individualised FODMAPs back into the diet to determine whether, number one, they're problematic for a person or number two, whether they're, um, well, how much can the person actually tolerate? And so this Um, ultimate diet is one where you have identified the triggers um, and you will minimise them, knowing that they're not going to do your body damage, but that we want to minimise the symptoms as well as have the diet as liberalised as possible. Um, And, you know, that's where we might look at someone that's following a vegan diet that is high in sort of typically onion, garlic, legumes. How do we um, maximise the the diet whilst also um, working with minimising those symptoms. So really individualising um, the care and uh, the input is just a really key part um, for people to move forward. So it sounds like, Kim, that you have to do a bit of calibrating and it might be a six-week period and then more swapping in and swapping out. Georgia, I'm yeah. keen to know along the way, as you've been modifying your diet, that you can control your own environment only to a certain extent, but what's been the response from friends, family? family, society, social challenges, you know, because food unites us and it's it can be hard when you have to say, sorry, I can't eat that. Yeah, I think um, it, it helps to have, to have informed your friends and family and to sort of have supportive people around you. Um, but it does impact everything, you know. It's really hard to go out to eat because onion and garlic, for me, um, are my big tickets and they are in absolutely everything. So when your social life revolves around going out for dinner, going out for brunch, it can be quite tricky to sort of, um, you know, you've got to, you've really got to pick a cuisine that works for you and let people know what you, you know, what you what you can and can't eat, I guess. Um, I, I do think it's an interesting, as you probably, you said before, I think it's interesting that people sometimes think that it's a bit of a made up phenomenon, like people are doing it for attention. Oh, I wasn't um, meaning to suggest that it was made up. I definitely don't think it's made up. Oh, no, no, no. I think <laughs> I think you said that there was a sort of... Um, Societal kind of position. feeling. Yeah, yeah, mm. which I, I definitely would agree. I think it's... I think my opinion is that it's because it's an invisible sort of illness, people, you know, they see you out for dinner, they see you eating certain things. And often when I'm out, if someone's cooked for me or, you know, something arrives with onion... I'm not going to send it back. I'm not going to say, no, I can't eat this. I'll just deal with it because I just think, you know, I don't want to ruin everyone's time. I don't want to be that person. So people see you out eating onion and garlic and they think, well, how bad can it possibly be if this is what you're doing? And I think it's because they don't see what you do at home, you know, sitting there feeling unwell or I personally eat bland foods ahead of time so that I've had sort of a baseline meal so I'm not overdoing the FODMAP side of things. Mm. So I think that's another challenge as well. Kim, before we finish, this can be tricky and sometimes embarrassing, these issues around gut. It can really impede in someone's quality of life. What are your final thoughts on how people can best get a handle on their gut health problems? 
Um, I certainly seek help. And um, like Georgia has said there, you know, it often can be a long road and it can be um, a demoralising road where people aren't validated for their symptoms. So um, I I think certainly speaking to people that specialise in gut health is really worthwhile. Um, And to know that your symptoms are very real and it it can be multifactorial. So, you know, we haven't mentioned um, pelvic floor. Physiotherapy can sometimes be a real support. Um, the gut-directed hypno, the dietary factors and, you know, just really equipping what I'd say the toolkit with as many skills to support and manage your condition um, is really helpful. Uh, but yes, to understand that your symptoms are very real, but there are lots of tools out there that can assist you. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Kim Menzies is an accredited practicing dietitian specialising in gut issues and food intolerances. And Georgia McDermott is a food blogger and an author whose new book is called The Intolerance Friendly Kitchen. Sometimes you may be asking yourself, depending on the state of your legs and feet, if your feet and legs are okay. Pigeon toes, bow legs, flat feet, these are things that many of us might think of as a problem in ourselves or in our children. And in the past, they may have been treated as problems by podiatrists. But it turns out there's a big difference between aesthetics and actual medical issues when it comes to our feet and legs. And they may be perfectly quote unquote normal. Dr. Angela Evans AM has been a practicing podiatrist for 30 years. Angela is also an academic with La Trobe University and a world leading expert in paediatric foot issues. And Angela, hello, welcome to Life Matters. Oh, Michael, uh, good morning. It's a very generous introduction. Thank you. Uh, Angela, when it comes to those things I mentioned, uh, pigeon toes, bow legs, flat feet, are they common issues that turn up at your clinic with worried parents? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. In fact, the three you have cited would be three of the most common presentations, not just to podiatrists, but to a range of primary care uh, clinicians. Um, So that reflects that they're common concerns in parents, and it's therefore really important that we're clear about what might be a problem and what's part of normal development. Um, well, let's talk about that. Yes, indeed. Because I take yeah. it that um, how these, these uh, not, I don't want to say abnormalities, but these, these kind of differences have been treated by professionals like yourself over the years. Oh, look, that's right. And I mean, um, we've, learnt, we've learnt better now. We have um, better access to population data, which shows us the trends across the population rather than just single cases that come into our clinics because, you know, there's um, a certain uh, level of filtering that goes on and by the time a child arrives to see me, they've already gone through a process of a parent being concerned and raising the need for some attention or at least some query, whereas what they may, uh, what we need to ask ourselves is how are they for their age in comparison to that uh, uh, that child um, or uh, similar peers across the population. Okay, so when it comes to gauging concern, are we now often no longer trying to correct these these differences compared to maybe 10, 20 years ago? Are, are things now being allowed to progress as, as normally as, as possible? Yes, um, and I think there's, as I say, the availability of better data has informed us. Perhaps if I use um, the example of in-towing gait to start with rather than talking about three at once. Sure. We used to think, and I'm probably, I think, 20, 30, 40, probably even 50 years ago, a lot of children who walked in with um, in-towing gait or who were pigeon-toed, and particularly some of these children, of course, were tripping, But even those who weren't, there tended to be a trend of um, putting these children into um, night braces and things to try and turn their feet out. Mm. We now know through looking at the way children develop as they grow up 
that as many as a quarter to a third of little children uh, preschool age will in tow as a part of the normal developmental profile. Now, you know, there are some caveats to that, Michael. Um, the child shouldn't be tripping over more than a handful of times a day, even when they're learning to walk. Um, one side shouldn't look different to the other, you know, left a lot different to right. And it shouldn't be painful. So there are some really good filters that parents can use. And in fact, we've actually developed for in-towing gait, for knock knees, bow legs and flat feet, what we call the three quick questions tool for parents so that they can do their own filtering before they even need to consult a health professional. Oh, well, Angela, you better tell us what those three questions are. I was hoping you'd ask me that, Michael. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, I've alluded to these as we've been talking about in towing gate. But for each of these conditions, the first question is, does it hurt? Because whether it's in towing gait or knock knees or flat feet, if it hurts, well, we know there's a problem somewhere because lower limb or foot pain in young children is relatively unusual. I see a lot of it, but that doesn't reflect the population. The right. second question is, is it asymmetrical? And by that, I mean, is the left side different to the right side? Because they should look similar. So if left is different to right or right is different to left, that should be investigated further. And that applies for in-towing gait, for the knees and for flat feet. But then for each of these conditions, there's a bit of an age range that is the next guide. And that's different for each condition. So we expect to see a degree of flat feet in children uh, when they're young and reducing up until age about 10. Right. Um, with knees, we expect to see little children up to age two, a bit bow-legged, then they straighten up and then they become knock-kneed as a part of normal development. And then with in-towing, as I said earlier, as many as a quarter to a third children in the preschool age bracket can in-tow as a part of normal development, but it shouldn't be painful and left should look like right. Okay, so that's that rules out a lot of concerns. And if you've just joined us, our guest is Dr. Angela Evans, AM, practicing podiatrist of 30 years, based in Adelaide, an academic with La Trobe University, and an expert uh, globally in paediatric foot issues, and hopefully bringing you some comfort if you've got children displaying some of these symptoms in their legs and feet, pigeon toes or in towing, bow legs, flat feet, etc. Angela, it's interesting that we're sort of exploding some of the the preconceptions that might have been around in years gone past about what this means in terms of intervention for these parts of our body because only earlier this week we were talking about some of the fallacies that exist in the general population and still among some practicing professionals around what makes good posture and I'm just wondering as we talk about this are there implications when you have differences in the way children hold their legs and feet for how their spines and overall skeletal health will be long term? Yeah, look, Michael, there can be because, I mean, the body um, is uh, segmented according to some disciplines, but obviously it's really a whole. We're connected head to foot. Um, in some children, and this is something I was just wanting to move on to if it's okay, when yeah. we see exaggerations in um, postures, be it really flat feet or um, pronounced in toe and knock knee, and I know that's difficult for listeners to say what do I mean by what's pronounced, but things that where a child looks very different to a group of their same aged peers then the job of a clinician is really to look at that and to think what other factors are at play here that might be um, part of this exaggerated overall posture which where feet and legs can affect things higher up. And sometimes we're looking at children who are hypermobile in their joints which means that their ligaments which connect bone to bone to give joint mobility but also stability can be stretchier than usual. Right. Now that's regular in young children and generally reduces with age. It can be a family trait, particularly a little bit more in girls. But then there are some particular 
conditions that may be a little bit under the radar and this can be part of teasing out a diagnosis for um, people with conditions where the protein component of their ligaments is different and it always will be stretchier and as they get older they can have more joint and postural problems. So if things aren't following regular patterns, then we need to be looking at it again to see why that is. And that's where, you know, clinical practice should be following these guidelines. Angela, when it comes to uh, that kind of triaging, if you like, of, of what's within yes. normal range and what, what may need correction, does that correction still involve bracing or can it these days also involve surgery? I think a lot more these days, and it does depend on the condition, um, but it's generally for children who don't have other diagnoses, it, uh, a lot more of the time now it involves um, strength exercises and even footwear selection, Michael. Because oh, one of the big things we do need to look at and part of the, um, you know, part of the clinical picture when we're talking to parents and children presenting like this is, other wider factors that affect health, like are you sufficiently active? Because if kids are inactive or not sufficiently active, then maybe they're just not strong enough and that can affect gait and posture as well. Um, and we need to, on the flip side of that, we need to look at are there factors that are really um, preventing kids from being active enough as in, you know, too much screen time, that sort of thing. So we've got to look at that wider health picture as to why these uh, or the other component um, variables that can feed into a child's um, picture. But many times it is sorted out quite simply by the age of the child and what we expect to see developmentally. And there's always a range. It's not a pinpoint value. No, um, it's a spectrum how, of, of different symptoms and, and behaviours, I take it. Exactly, exactly. And the family history comes into this. You know, we need to be realistic about the gene pool from which a child is derived. And if we have two sets of parents and maybe four sets of grandparents with flat feet that hurt as they're getting older then sure, we're going to be more suspicious that this young child may follow suit. It's not definite, but we're going to be monitoring them a bit more carefully and probably advising them to work on their strengths and to be as active as possible to offset that as is um, feasible. I, we only have a few seconds left, Angela, but you've raised some interesting uh -huh. issues. I just wanted to, to I know, I know, uh, but I just want to take up a couple of things with you. And that is, if, if your child is sedentary and uh, well, is not as active as they should be, and they have some of these, these differences in the way their feet and legs operate at a young age, do you encourage more activity? Is that part of the solution? It can be part of the solution, but it also can be if for some children that the flat feet or the in-towing or the knees can be part of the reason why that child isn't sufficiently active. Right. So we need to tease that out as well to make sure that the cases that really are deserving of attention and intervention aren't being missed, are being adequately treated, because it's all about restoring you know, gait, function, mobility, quality of life that, and health that feeds out from that. But we just don't want to be treating unnecessarily and wasting resources. Um, no. And we shouldn't be if we follow this coarse filter and then in the clinical sphere, um, finer filters and make good evidence-based decisions. Angela, it's been an absolute delight. Hopefully that's calmed some parents' fears listening at, at this very moment. And uh, thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome, Michael. Thank you. Dr. Angela Evans AM, practicing podiatrist of 30 years experience based in Adelaide. That's it for now. The next episode of Life Matters is all about individual responses to a changing climate. We'll speak to some who've taken action that's making a real difference, like the co-founder of an organisation that's putting rubbish bins into the ocean to help stop things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch from happening. I'm Hilary Harper. Join me then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.